You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. session I actually told everybody I was most excited about coming in. I said I really wanted to have these two mayors on stage together. One of the great things about what I get to do for a living is I get to meet really bright people who are doing really difficult things in communities. These are two leaders that I have found incredibly inspiring. People who are going to come at things from a very different angle but who share a very similar concern in terms of how they look at their community, what they want to see happen, and the passion that they bring to it. I also think that it's really important in the time that we're in with the you know, kind of omnipresent partisanship and the bickering to have people who represent very different places and come from very different backgrounds actually you know, sitting together and speaking, not just civilly, but very intelligently about issues in very similar ways. So, please, I'm not going to do a, a huge introduction, but I'd like to uh, welcome to the stage the former mayor of Seattle, Mike McGinn, and the former mayor of Lafayette, Louisiana, Joey Durrell. Please welcome to uh, This is a podcast we're recording, so this is going to be broadcast sometime in the next week. We're also streaming live, but, you know... Our podcast listeners are special people. So welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. Mike, you've been on a couple times. Yes. Uh, Joey, I wanted to have you on. I'm happy that you're here for the first time. Glad to be here. I'd like everybody to know a little bit about your background and how you became involved in politics in Lafayette and made the decision to run for mayor. What were you trying to accomplish? Well, I, had, I was drinking one night. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I came... I had retail stores. I was a business person in Lafayette. Believe it or not, I had chains of I chain of pet shops. I had restaurants. Went well together. But um, <laughs> I was in the pleasure boat business and the furniture business. So I spent my entire life out of college in retail. Uh, but at some point, I got involved civically. I remember the first thing I got involved with civically was Big Brothers Big Sisters. Uh, so that was my first sort of time to get out of my business, away from my own family, and to step out civically. The first first three years they tried to get me to join Big Brothers Big Sisters, I said, my first answer was, I got my own kids to take care of right now. You know, that's how I saw it. And uh, But when I had the opportunity, I got involved with that. So uh, from there, I got involved with the Citizens Advisory Committee on the Metropolitan Planning Organization, and I got, for the first time, I started saying, Oh, they're not all just crooks. They're not all just idiots. There's reasons they do it the way they do it. So I started learning and getting a little bit better educated on it. I did something called Leadership Lafayette, something called Leadership Louisiana, where you get a better overview of what makes your community, in our case, and what makes your state tick. Ultimately became chairman of the board of the Greater Lafayette Chamber of Commerce. All those things combined get you to a point. And, of course, before you become chairman of the board of the Chamber of Commerce, you spend some years climbing the ladder and sort of getting into leadership positions. I was on the, uh, I was the vice chair of education for two years, vice chair of finance one year. So by the time you achieve the level of chairman of the board and you finish your year, you become a jack of all trades and a master of none, in that you get a much better idea of what it really makes your community tick. 
And of course, like any organization at all, the more you put into it, the more passion you develop and the more you get out of it. So by the time I did that, at the end of my year, I started getting courted to run for the school board, which is what I swore I would never, ever in my life would never run for the school board because I think they have the hardest elected position in America today. But they saw vulnerability because I was talking to about that. Anyway, ultimately, I got I had people who you who, as I put it, you know, love and respect come and talk to you about something serious like that, and ultimately uh, made the decision that I would give it a shot. That's the only position I ever ran for, and will ever run for again. How many of you are elected in here right now? If I forget earlier, but. Yeah. I, just, I want you to know, and I want people who are thinking about running for office. When I ran for office, when I got elected, I was six foot three and had a head full of hair. So. <laughs> <laughs> you you made it sound like you ran for the school board. You you no, ran. I did not. I did not run for it. Right. And, uh, but I got called one day uh, to somebody's office, and a friend said, "Bring bring Lynn with you. Bring your wife." And so it was a strange call, and I said, I told my wife on the way there. I said, "I might be wrong, but." I said, think they're going to talk to us about me running for the school board. To make a long story short, I could not run for the position they thought I could run for because districts had been changed and the person I would have wanted to run for against uh, was not even the district I was in. So, But my point is, I think we didn't say absolutely not, never got to that point to be able to say no, and I think, my point is, I think they saw a vulnerability that maybe I would consider running for office. They saw you as a sucker. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, Mayor McGinn, I know you have a, a different route. Yes. Maybe less through the Chamber of Commerce and yes. more in yes. a different direction. So explain. Yeah, I'll explain my route. You know, I was, you know, big Irish Catholic family from Long Island, went to a nice school and got home, had no idea what to do. And about a year after college, I actually ended up working for a congressman. And I think I got it in my head then that uh, maybe I could run for office because I'd seen a lot of congressman, and, and it really looked like just about anybody could do this job. <laughs> no, no, I'm not kidding either. I mean, I'm not just trying to be a joker. It's like, oh, wow, like, how did they get there? I ended up in Seattle to go to law school, and, and I really liked the Northwest. And, and I think I was thinking then, maybe I'll run for office one day. And then uh, one kid, and another kid, and another kid, and I was working in a law firm, and I actually said, I'm never going to run for office. That's just, that's just, all the planets have to align. And it's a really risky and hard thing to do. And that turned out to be actually a very freeing moment for me. Because then I just said, well, I'm just going to work on stuff I care about. Because I did have some type of civic bug. And I actually started volunteering for the Sierra Club then. And they said, oh, you work for a congressman? Will you be there, our political chair? And I said, absolutely. And I had no idea what I was doing. But... We worked on trying to figure out how to endorse good candidates for office, and so I was exposed to the political process as well as exposed to lots of issue campaigns. Uh, we moved to a neighborhood in Seattle called Greenwood. It was right north of the old city line. It had been annexed by the city, you know, 40 years earlier, and there were no sidewalks. So it's like, how can I make it safe for my kids and I to walk to the neighborhood grocery store? Because in the absence of sidewalks, the you walk between the parked cars and the speed and traffic. It was like a cut-through area. And I just started working in my neighborhood, and we did ultimately get a bunch of blocks of sidewalks, but it was a lot of organizing. And my work got more and more local. I went from worrying about how do we elect good congressmen or congresswomen from Washington to, like, how do we get a good city council member or how do we get money for local stuff? And we can talk more about that, too. 
it absorbed so much of my time and energy, I ended up quitting my job as a lawyer and founding a nonprofit. It's called Great City. It was focused on how do you bring together community members and environmental advocates and housing advocates um, and business, too. How do you bring them together around a common vision of a place? That chart that Ash put up earlier, if you went to the old Great City website, you know, the one with the different circles all pointing towards the middle, I had a very similar chart uh, advertising my nonprofit. And so I was deeply, deeply involved in city politics by that time. Like, I cared who the mayor was. I thought our incumbent mayor was going to lose. I was disappointed in him for a variety of reasons. I was looking around for somebody I thought would have my values. I didn't want uh, him to be beat by somebody further to the right. Uh, he's been paying too much attention to global warming, not enough attention to potholes. And I was highly, highly motivated by global warming at that point as an environmental advocate and as a neighborhood advocate. It, it just had become very passionate about it. And nobody with a pedigree was going to run against the incumbent because, you know, he had all the endorsements and everything and all the money. One day I decided, I'm not even quite sure how, I decided I could win that race. I decided that the planets had aligned. And I also realized that I had all of the values that I liked. It turned out my you know, like 100% connection between the values I was looking for the, and the values the I The diagram between you the, and the, you was... Yeah, it was really strong. Really strong. It was really kind of funny, because by that time, I'd actually worked on a couple of ballot measure campaigns in a very direct way. I'd run one for my nonprofit in the Sierra Club. We'd fought a highway bill and, and won... So I knew a little bit about campaigning, and I knew some people who knew about campaigning. I remember saying in front of them one time, like, uh, yeah, I could, I could win this race. I could beat the incumbent. They were like, oh, whatever. And like two weeks later, they came back to me and said, are you really thinking about it? Because we've been thinking about it, and you could. And I needed them. And uh, yeah, so that, that was my path. And I, I think I was very highly motivated by... As I mentioned earlier, climate, I thought that we had great rhetoric and our ideals weren't matching up, but I was also very highly motivated by what I felt was a failure to really engage and listen to the community about community concerns. I just thought that, that the way city government was working was very distant and top-down, and we needed to be more bottom-up. That, that, that was my values as well. So that, that was my path to it, and uh, it was surprising. I, never, I didn't know I was going to... I thought I was never going to run for office, and then, like I said, the planets aligned, and, and I did it. As you're going through the, the first campaign, what were some of the major issues that you were faced with? And, and then, at what point did you start to think that maybe you could win? I personally thought I could win the whole time, and fortunately I had a couple of other people who thought that too. Pretty much nobody else thought that. Um, <laughs> even my volunteers. I remember one day we won a Democratic district endorsement, and, and somebody jokingly said, yeah, it's like we're a real campaign or something. And by the way, everybody in the room laughed. I was like, oh my God, yeah, they, you know. You guys didn't think I could win, did you? Yeah, so I think from the beginning I had a sense I could win, although I didn't know I could win. And the major issues, I ran on a platform uh, around greater city involvement in education. We don't have direct control, um, but there's a separate school board, and it's state really sets the funding, but I said the city should get more engaged. Transit was a high priority for me. Municipal broadband, and in fact, we actually met. Shortly after I was elected, I forgot this until we met again, we learned from the Lafayette mayor how they did it. So we actually met shortly after I was in office. Um, but while that was my platform, 
Um, it turned out that the decision to take a, a, an old elevated highway and put it in a tunnel underneath our waterfront was a big issue in the city, and uh, and I opposed that tunnel and and uh, struck a chord with people who wanted a more progressive looking path and those who were concerned about spending too much money. You know, one of the things I left out of my path was my passion. And when people ask, when you run for office for the first time, every single candidate gets this question, and I think they would all agree. And that question is, why in the world would you do this to you and your family? And, um, and my answer was very simple. I said, I want my kids to stay home. Uh, Louisiana, like a lot of states, had an out-migration problem. You know, our greatest export was our kids. And I had watched in my coming up through the Chamber of Commerce and other civic things, I, I, I started paying more attention to politics and politicians. And I'd hear a lot of talk, but I'd never see a whole lot of action. And, uh, and I felt like uh, there was, in coming up that route, I understood my community better. And I felt Lafayette was really ready to burst at the seams but my predecessor had been in politics for 35 years, old school, and I just felt I felt Lafayette needed some new energy, some new enthusiasm, and some, some new blood. And so, um, again, like Michael, I, I wouldn't have done it if I thought I was going to lose. I knew I had because I thought I was going to run against the incumbent. I expected to run against my predecessor. Uh, but one of the things I had heard in those years, in those last two or three years before I did this, was that, you know, if he can walk in, He's in a, he'll, he'll stay in there. We, we're term limited to three, three uh, four-year terms in life. Yeah, he had been there for two. It wouldn't be two when I, when I ran against him. He'd be running for his third term. They said, if he's got some strong opposition, he likely won't run. I went and talked to him. I'll never forget the day before Thanksgiving in 2002. And I said, his name was Walter Como. I said, Mr. Como, I said, um, you've probably heard the rumors, um, but I said, I'm coming. I want to come talk to you face-to-face -face and tell you that I'm going to run for the job. And I said, I'm not mad at you. I'm not one of these people that are mad at the world, think everything is horrible. I said, I care about Lafayette. I want to be part of the future. And uh, I said, and I'm, I'm going to work very, very hard to get the job. Because I heard he didn't want to work hard. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, he, uh, it turns out his chief administrative officer uh, was sitting in the room with us, the two of the three of us were talking, and uh, he is who I ended up running against. So I was not running against the incumbent, I ran against the incumbency. You know, he still had that machine. And um, good guy, uh, much more qualified than I ever would have been. Uh, I, I said that often after I got elected. If I had looked at us on paper, I would have voted for him. You know, um, but I was passionate. Uh, as I said often, if, um, if my kids want beautiful snow-peaked mountains or if they want really pretty blue water, I can't help them. But I never, ever want my kids to come to me and say, Dad, we can't support our family here. We have to move. So as I've told my community many times over 12 years, we will not lose that unique Cajun culture because strange-looking people move in. We will lose our culture because our people move out. And so for me, it was totally about jobs. Always, always about jobs. Infrastructure. You can go back into the 60s and read studies about Lafayette. It's always traffic, 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 traffic. And as Michael and I were talking before, never going to be solved. And in my, I told when people would come to me and talk about traffic, I say there are mayors all around America that would cut their right arm off to have the traffic problems we have. 
because Lafayette is a growing community, and I ran under the premise that communities do not stay stagnant. They either grow or they die. And to me, growth sounds better than death. So uh, I, wanted, I wanted Lafayette to be a city that people want to live in, and I thought it was pretty simple. We have to be a place that people want to live and raise their family, and if we can do that, then the jobs will come. We have, you know, we had the oil and gas industry, which was a big thing for us, just like it is here, and uh, and so we've gone through some tough times. But Lafayette is not Lafayette's much more diversified than we were in the '80s during that bus. But anyway, to answer your question, uh, when I started running, I ran to win. Uh, I didn't run to bring a message. We worked very hard, and I think you know, and energized. I think we had energized. I was young back then. Like I said, I was six foot three, had a head full of hair, and I was only fifty. Um, but it was uh, there was a lot of energy, I, and the timing was right for me. People were ready for something new, and it worked. Both of you, to one degree or another, were embroiled in transportation issues. You know, you have the tunnel and the yeah. the, the elevated expressway. You know, coming from the chamber, you had a lot of pressure from the chamber to, to essentially raise taxes and spend a lot more on transportation. You had the big highway project through the downtown. That was there was never a lot of pressure to raise taxes. I'll just tell you now. I'll tell you that for sure. Yeah, but but yeah, go ahead. I would like you to talk through some of the things that you faced. And maybe we could start with, with you, Miguel. I, I think when you and I first met, one of the things you expressed to me was that at that point you were term limited out, you were done. And you said there's kind of a tradition here of raising taxes on the way out. And, you know, we're getting, there's this huge backlog of transportation stuff that I don't feel like a tax increase would, would solve any problems. We were the first city in America to major city to bring fiber up and down every street. We have our own utility company, by the way. You need to understand that. The Lafayette utility system was voted on by the people of Lafayette in 1896 because the private sector said, you're too small of a community for us to bring this new technology called electricity to your town. So in 1897, Lafayette's utility department within the city started bringing electricity to all the homes and businesses in Lafayette. Because of that, we got the university and other things happened. So that's kind of a bump in Lafayette's past where we started some real growth in that part of the state. So I get into office in 2004. We ultimately, make a long story short, we get fiber to the home uh, through our utility company, a vote of the people, by 62 to 38% in the ninth most conservative city in America, according to Berkeley, uh, for the government to get into this telecommunications business. Again, people were ready for change. They were, I mean, we had some... We had the honeymoon going, right? You know, we had we had good things happening. We fought a battle. I tell people all the time, we were probably the most fiber-educated community in America by the time that vote happened. And I tell politicians all the time, the best way to educate your community is controversy. Nothing will educate your community better than controversy because it's in the news every day. You hate being the butt of it. You hate being a part of it. But it's a, it's a necessary evil, and it's an educational uh, tool. So... We won the fiber to the home vote in 2005. So I'm thinking, hmm, let's go for a tax. Uh, you know, we've got some momentum going. We had an extended honeymoon. People were excited. You know, they were, they were impressed, I think, by um, the fact that we stood up to multi-billion dollar companies, went all the way to the state Supreme Court uh, through multiple uh, battles and courts, and stuck with it and won and, uh, and brought something great. We're now, uh, there are seven cities in the world, Singapore, <coughs> Tokyo, Seoul, 
Chattanooga, Kansas City, Lafayette, then in Southern International Magazine said, those are the seven cities with the fastest internet speed in the world. We're now delivering two gigabits, and by the way, if you're buying 50 megabits from us, we give you a gigabit for free, peer-to-peer, customer-to-customer. So it's all about creating jobs. It was never to save people money on their phone bill. Point is, I had heard all my life, especially in my civic life, traffic was the number one issue. Well, you know, for me, I hated hearing problems because I, I want to find solutions. And so, as I said, Citizens Advisory Committee, I started learning that they're not just crooks, they're not just stupid, there's reasons they're not building the roads, or there's reasons they're not fixing the infrastructure. And I came to understand it better, and I also came to understand when I got in office, one of the first, I'll never forget, one of the first things I heard in the hallway from the Chief Financial Officer, we can't fund internal agencies, yet we continue to fund external agencies. And so, you know, that, that hit me. And, uh, and I'm looking at the finances and what we inherited and what was going on. The year before I ran for re-election, not the year I was getting out, the year before I ran for re-election, I put up a tax. And I was pretty cocky. I mean, we were going to win this. It was, I mean, people wanted infrastructure fixed. They wanted roads fixed. It's all I ever heard. And we got spanked, like 65 to 35% loss. But... For the next several years, it was one of the best things I had done because people were complaining about traffic. <laughs> <laughs> you can't very well complain about it if you're not going to fix it. But then one day, it hit me that if we're not going to build things or pay for things the way our forefathers did, we can't do things the way our forefathers did. And so ultimately, it became the, I guess, the seed was planted for us to do a true comprehensive plan. And that's when... You got involved, and, uh, and we decided that it's impossible. We can't keep doing what we're doing because what we, the model we, we have, and not just Lafayette, in your cities too, everywhere in America, Lafayette is 127,000 people. Now, depending on how you count, there's 20 to 30,000 incorporated cities, towns, villages in America today. So I'll use the number 25,000. We have 127,000 people. You know where we stack up in that 25,000 cities? We're the 214th largest city in America. So that tells me that we are a country of small towns. I mean, there's only 10, I think the next census will have 10 or 11 cities that are a million or more. You know, I would have thought, a few years ago, I thought there were 25 or 30 in the United States that had a million people. So the point is, your city might be the next Lafayette that a few years ago was 30,000, now is 127, and we didn't do a great job of planning because it, it was it was we had sort of, sort of slow, steady growth. We had some boom times, I guess, but nothing like a like a Las Vegas where they're getting five thousand new people a month or something like that. I mean, we never had that kind of growth. So anyway, that was my infrastructure battle was a solution was a tax because that's what your solutions are. That's what everybody's solution has always been. That's what we were taught the solution was: pay for more concrete. And like I said, maybe. Maybe it was a blessing in disguise. It probably was a blessing in disguise that it got defeated and made us take a different track. I appreciate you know hearing your passion because you were talking about how do we prepare our city for the future? How do we make it a place for our kids? And that really was I mentioned the issues I worked on, but that was the underlying set of values for me too. And it was you know it's 2009, as you remember, we were heading into a very you know banks were failing, um, we lost a big bank, and jobs were going down. And it's bringing me back to my stump speech, which was really the three things I talked about, education, transit, and broadband, was how do we prepare our city for the future? You know, in a competitive world, world economy, how does the city of Seattle stand out and compete? 
And I use that to contrast with the tunnel, which I believe to be just a, a waste of money, still do. By the way, it, it ultimately got pushed through. I was very much alone in my opposition. And one of the most difficult things to push across was this idea of opportunity cost. You know, we really only have so much money. And if we're going to try to prioritize this set of vehicles moving past the city at this speed, there's other things we're not going to be able to do. It's very hard to do because people are like, well, how do we replace that elevated? You know, what do we make work with it? So the, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up that idea of, of culture change because that, I, I ran into that. By the way, I haven't mentioned bicycles yet, but that's the other one that was always very controversial. You know, um, lots of support for it, lots of opposition to it, even in Seattle. But it really, at heart, at bottom, it was what are the productive investments we can make in our future and what are the unproductive investments that we need to shed so we can make productive investments. That was how I attempted to frame it and, and push it. It tended to get pushed down to a narrow, a more narrow issue very frequently. And I, I don't think that the state of Washington has yet really grappled with or, or answered this question. Uh, we just had a statewide ballot measure, which is going to drop billions and billions into expanded highways. We had a situation where many of the environmental groups were pushed onto the sidelines because they were pushing for transit expansion as part of it. So now we have billions for transit expansion and billions for highway expansion, and we're really, you know, both of these in the long run is going to be very challenging to have the dollars to pay for. And like I said, I, I invited the mayor to Seattle to hear about broadband. We still don't have municipal broadband. We still don't have fiber throughout the city. And this is Seattle. Like, how are we going to compete in the world economy when, you know, and when I say this is Seattle, I mean, Amazon, Microsoft, we now have, you know, Google and Facebook and all sorts of other startups. And it, it brings me to a bigger connection. I talked about investing in the future. Another frame I tried to use was connectivity. And if we're going to focus on how do we move cars, we're making the question too narrow. How do we connect with each other in our communities? How do we connect our neighborhoods to each other? How do we connect our businesses to the world economy? And that should lead to a different set of answers than let's expand the highway system. Um, you know, because the internet is now how we're going to connect people. And, and not just our businesses, but you know, the digital divide and the equity issues this has for people, you know, in the community, for a lot of people, the phone is their only computer connection. You know, a smartphone. I mean, there's deep inequity there. Um, and some people don't have any. So when we keep talking about how we're going to connect people, I, I always kept going back to these things. So that was, I think that was the big challenge. And the question that, keep, that kept coming back was, yeah, I, I, we hear you, great, positive vision, but where are you going to put all the cars if you don't replace that highway? And if you, take, if you put in a bike lane, what about the cars? And even the new house, right? Well, where are you going to put the cars? I mean, if you bring in an apartment building, where will the cars go? So unbelievable amounts of city policy time is spent on the question of where are you going to put all the cars? And where are you going to store them? And how are you going to move them around? Which is, in a successful city, there's a physical limitation. This is not an ideological issue. It's a geometry issue. You know, we're not going to widen our streets in downtown Seattle. And making the highways bigger just means... You know, it's kind of like if your backyard is flooding and you say, hey, bring in a fire hose and bring that in too. You know, adding more cars to a congested downtown grid is just going to make it worse. That was the challenge. How do we stop talking about where are we going to put all the cars and instead talk about what are the most productive investments for the future and really put, put one against the other?
I'd like to talk about lessons. You lost the debate over the tunnel. Absolutely. And, and you lost the debate over the gas, te- the, the tax increase for the for transportation. Looking back, what would you have liked to have told yourself before you embarked on that that would have, if not changed the outcome, at least informed the way you proceeded through that process? Like, I'll, I'll I think for you, I'll take a shot you I think for you, maybe defeat was inevitable. But but you know just because of the way things were stacked up, right? Like that's not a that's not a criticism. No, no it's, it's a, hey, I admire the person who walks the plank for like the right thing, right? I did just like running for mayor, and just like those earlier ballot measures. There were earlier ballot measures where we were told we couldn't win, we couldn't win. I was like, oh, we can win this one, we can win this one. We just have to take it to the people. If we can just get it to the people, they'll see the sense of it. And we did ultimately get it to the people, but in a very convoluted and confusing way. And there was a lot of decision fatigue in the city at the time. So it was done, and that was it. I I think the biggest lesson I took away from it was that that project was just so far down, you know, the stays. It was so far down the process, and there was such an alignment of interest for it um, that I couldn't turn it around. But it it was big, and it was worth the debate. And I was not the only one working on it. I don't want to make... Sound. As an elected official, I felt pretty alone, uh, except for some conservative Republicans from rural areas. Um, but they were kind of sat upon by some of the, by the statewide Republicans because this was a high priority for the Chamber of Commerce. And all the Democrats were for it because you had all the, the trade unions were for it as well as the Chamber. So I was pretty politically isolated among elected officials, but there was a great grassroots organization called the People's Waterfront Coalition, and we had some of my other allies that had helped me win that, that were in on that fight as well. One of the lessons I took away, and one of the things I tried to do as mayor, was set the groundwork. You know, I started adopting some of the tactics as an elected official that had defeated me on the tunnel. How do we get the good projects far enough along the way and, and, and hold off the bad projects so that they don't get that same momentum. And that was, I think, the biggest lesson I, I took away from it. Um, it's still hard because, because without the culture shift that, that Chuck is talking about, um, you'll still see, I've seen projects that I got going cut off, and I've seen projects that I stalled you know, since I left office get momentum again um, because, you know, um, now I'm not in a position to tell my staff don't work on that. Um, and they're working on those things again. So we're seeing those projects come back again. So I think that's the biggest lesson is you really need the public. Super, I mean, I, this is the joke I make. Before I ran for office, I thought that uh, the work I was doing as an advocate was important. And after I was in office, it was like, oh, it's essential. You know, you just can't do it without really powerful advocacy from the public. And I overplayed my hand. I thought I could win that with support from the public, and I couldn't. I needed, I needed more help from the outside. There was only so much I could do from the inside. If you could talk to yourself back then before the, the tax cut were opposed, would well, you have not done it? I'm, or I'm, would you? I'm better off talking to myself now yeah. than before, because if I had it over to do again, not knowing what I know now, I would have done what some people said, Joey, what you should have done, you should have gone around telling everybody how miserable their lives were gonna be if this didn't pass. And what I would do is I'd go around and I would say at my state of the county, state of the parish in Louisiana, I'd say, look, if this doesn't pass, it's not the end of the world. You know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't try to use fear uh, to sell it. And um, so if I had it over to do again, wanting it to pass, 
I would have gone out and raised private dollars and done more advertising and done more traditional uh, forms of marketing the tax because the truth is there wasn't much of a controversy. It wasn't in the news every day. The Chamber of Commerce ultimately endorsed it um, about a week before and somebody said that was about the most non-endorsement endorsement I've ever seen in my life. The newspaper endorsed it a few days before. The Automobile Dealers Association endorsed it. The Realtors Association endorsed it. The only organization in my town that didn't endorse it was the Democratic Party. And they're the only organization that didn't invite me to come talk to them. And, and I know from hearing from them, they couldn't give that Republican mayor a win. They even told my brother one time when we were going for fiber, we're going to support this. This was the head of the party at the time of, the, of this parish executive committee. We're going to support this publicly, but we're all going to vote for it because we can't give a Republican mayor a success. So politics, these are, these are little people in, and I don't mean like that, what I mean is they are, they want to play in the big leagues, and so they want to act like big leaguers, you know, and in local politics, he and I can laugh about <laughs> each other, because our passion was much to do with infrastructure, and as you heard this morning, it's, that's not Republican or Democrat. Water doesn't know Republican or Democrat, it just flows downhill and, uh, and floods anybody's homes in its path. It's how politics should be. There are some things philosophically that he's probably very passionate about that I would disagree with. Um, but 90% of what our jobs are, yeah. we're not going to solve those social issues. You know, we're not at our level. And that's why I think, I've, I've always said in Louisiana, I've said this for many years, that if we're going to solve problems in Louisiana, it's not going to be at the state level, it's going to be at the local level. If the mayor of Baton Rouge is trying to make his town the best place to live and raise a family, and the mayor of Lafayette is trying to make his town the best place to live and raise a family, and the mayor of Lake Charles is doing the same thing in Alexandria, in New Orleans, then it becomes like a crystal, and we, we fix Louisiana. Waiting for the state government to do it, I said that many times. I, I go to the state government and say, don't just give us money for roads. Make us put up some of the money. Yeah. You, don't, you only have, you all complain all the time about how little money you have. <clears throat> double what you have by saying, if you've only got a billion dollars to put into roads, double that money by saying only communities that put up a 50% match will get that. Then you get $2 billion worth of roads done. But don't keep doing things the same way. I want to touch on kind of that bigger issue because you, you mentioned the, the Democrat and inviting you and all. We have this, and I'll just say bizarre situation right now in Washington, D.C., and, and really have for a while. Where, it's been brutal for years. Yeah, we're having a, a, a really difficult time talking to each other. If you were still the mayor of your city and you could go to Washington today and, and give some advice to the president of the Congress, particularly as it comes to you know, the things that could be done to help with the real, very real issues that you have to deal with as a mayor. The kind of meat and potatoes, block and tackle, basic stuff that you have got to get done or cities don't work. What would you want them to take away? What, what would you want them to hear and to not just hear, but understand? I would say remember where you ran in the first place. That's 30 years ago. Yeah. You know, y'all been here too long. I mean, they, they become... They're just not part of the real world, and we've seen that in this last election. I've said for years, there's a revolution brewing in this country, and I think Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders both represented that revolution. I think people have had it. Uh, they've had it with Washington. They've had it with Washington politics, and I don't think you could give them any advice, but I would say care. You know, I mean, just just forget. They can't. Their egos. We have a 24-hour news cycle. You know, the only thing I trust less than politicians at this stage in my life is the news media. 
I think the news media is dishonest. I think the news media is corrupt. I think the news media is the most untrustworthy institution in America today. And they do more harm to our country than the politicians do. The politicians in Washington do a lot of harm, but I think the media is doing much more harm. And, um, you know, it's true. I mean, they just, they, they, having to, they all are having to out-sensationalize each other to try to get the ratings. It's all about money. The media, when I first got into office, i got to tell you, I was pretty naive. I thought the media was a public service. They are a fast food restaurant. All they care about is dollars. They are no different than any other business out there. They just care about advertising dollars, and they will do anything they can to get it. But um, they are harmful to this country, and they make they make the Democratic Party, what I was at, want to play in the big leagues. You know, they, since they can't play in the big leagues, they want to try like act like the big leagues. And so, same thing with the Republican. I mean, and it's not unique to the Democratic Party. I'm not, but because um, you know, I went, I went. I'll never forget to give you an example. I went to fight for something called adjudicated properties. Y'all all have that? Um, these, are, these are neighborhoods that are, have gone down, mostly black, but you know, very, very bad areas of town that have, have lost investment and um, people have moved out. And so that there, it's complicated to get a hold of a property where a couple had eight children 40 years ago and those eight children now have, you know, there's now 50 of them, and not one of them live in Louisiana, and nobody's paying the taxes. Well, you can't just go in there and take the property, right? It's property rights. So it's, it's a very complicated process to get that property available to get into commerce. Well, I went to Baton Rouge trying to get legislation passed, like New Orleans had done and Baton Rouge had done, to help us with our adjudicated property issue in Lafayette. Guess who I had to fight? The Tea Party and the Black Caucus. <laughs> Blew my mind because my two minority councilmen didn't want certain things to be done. And so I'm in Baton Rouge. That's when I started losing my hair the first time. Was I, I said, I'm fighting the far right and the far left who always say how far apart they are, but they don't realize how close the far right and the far left really are. They're mostly both obstructionists. And they just don't realize how close they, they may come from different directions, but the results are the same. And so it's stunning to me that I'm trying to fix a major, major problem in our community to help the people who need it the most and the people I'm fighting, the far right should have wanted it fixed to get it into commerce, right, and have them pay taxes and make it contribute to the communities or whatever else, and the far left should have wanted to clean up the, the neighborhoods. We lost. We, 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 in fact, before I got to the Capitol this one day, I got a call and said, you can turn around. They've gotten to the legislators. They've pulled the legislation. You know, so. Now, I bet the longer we talk, we'd find some areas of disagreement, but I'm sticking with areas of agreement first. But this idea, I'm, when, when you said about the backlash against government and the distrust from both sides and how it propelled both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, you know, I, I wanna, I'm resisting the temptation to get a soapbox out here and stand up and start going. Right, because I do believe that there are certain folks that are consistently getting served by the political process, um, but it ain't the regular folks. It just isn't. We can see that, and I, I got a real close-up look at it locally. And, and when Ash was up, and somebody asked him, "What enemies did you make, and who were the opponents?" and he said, "The highway lobby. You know, a lot of this money is a very, very efficient way to funnel taxpayer dollars from one, from all of us." to a set of companies. And, and while it may not be efficient from a transportation sense, from a lobbying sense, it's highly efficient. 
right? Emails and campaign donations, a lobbyist, and we're talking billions of dollars into your favorite industry. So there are folks who are consistently getting served across both parties, and there are a lot of folks who, who aren't. And I, I, that's one of my biggest challenges. And my first reaction, I love your answer, why'd you get in? Because I do believe everybody gets in because they want to do something. But you do see the politics. I had the experience when I was uh, opposing the tunnel, while it was still a hot issue, I was trying to build support for Seattle to start funding some of its own transit. And I actually had a city council member say to me, well, if that means, if, the, if you're going to use that to oppose the tunnel, then I'm opposing the transit. It's like, we need transit. Everybody in the city loves transit. I can't believe you're saying this. But it was, you know, we can't give a win um, over here, particularly if it's going to mean a defeat on my thing. The message, I don't even know if I'd bother going to Washington, to be honest with you. I know that doesn't sound good. But the message I've been trying to sell internally to Seattle, the one I was trying to sell as mayor and post-mayor, I've said it, you know, it's time to stop waiting for the federal government or the states to come solve your problems. Right? I mean, if you ask every mayor what would be the solution, it would be like, can they just like load up some dump trucks full of money and dump them here? I mean, we can't print it. You guys can. Come on. But it's not going to happen, and certainly never to the scale that would be needed. Um, I wrote an article in a local piece after Trump took office. Sanctuary cities was the issue. Right? Will there be punishment for sanctuary cities? And that's just tip of the iceberg stuff. The Really, the broader issue is um, we're just not going to see the money from the feds to fund you know, health care, social services, infrastructure replacement, etc. Which means that cities themselves are going to have to make really hard choices about what are their priorities and, and maybe start letting go of the nice-to-have projects, you know, the, the expansion projects or the, you know, what, you know, we've got a list in our city and you probably have a list in yours. But really, what's most important so that's on the spending side, and this is why I find uh, the Strong Towns message so powerful. How do you, you know, the box is you can only cut spending so much, you know, how do you grow your revenue in a way that, that you're actually have a product, you know, you're making productive investments? And that comes around to all the other questions. So I've been a big advocate that cities like Seattle, which are experiencing success, the way you set yourselves up for success in the future is really start doing the math of how much can we pay for it ourselves, and how will we pay for it, and what does that mean to cut off? It's just, you know, stand up on your own two feet and be resilient, and uh, maybe one day Congress will come around, but I don't know how long that will take, and I also just don't think it's financially prudent for cities to, to engage in that behavior. I'm going to ask one more question, and then we're going to have a little bit of time. If anybody has a, a question out here, we can probably take a couple at the end. But often in Strong Town's advocacy, I get people who ask the question, like, I, I want to run for council. I want to yeah. do things. Or, or they'll say to me, why don't you go out and just talk to council members? Like, they're the people who can make the difference and the change. Yeah. And there's this part of me that, you know, when we had the conversation about a culture shift, it's essentially a, a shift to give support for people who want to do things. It, it's, it's really hard to do things when the culture's not behind you. If you were to look out at, at the people here and, and recognize that many of them want to be more involved, what would you recommend to them? Would it be run for office? Would it be, you know, be an advocate in some way? What, what would your recommendation to, to people who want to make the world a better place, how would they go about doing that? Obviously, start with your passion. You know, I mean, it's, it's a lot easier. I mean, I can tell you for me, 
uh, I get asked the question often in my 12 years from family members, good friends that I had before I got in office who are still my friends, most of them, after I got out of office. <laughs> and um, But the most exciting thing to me, and I've got to tell you, I loved my 12 years. I enjoyed it. I, I, I'm so glad I was term limited because you do get to a point to where I think you start getting trapped because there were people, the lady who was my executive assistant, quit someplace else, moved from another town to come work for me. Um, she was, uh, you know, other people that hired, quit other jobs to work for me. There's a point where you think, well, God, if I, if I decide not to run for office, they're likely to lose their jobs. And, you know, they're on this many years away from retirement, or they this, their family this, they just found out so-and-so has cancer, you know, whatever. And now you're, now you're staying in beyond your, what you should be staying in for. But I loved my 12 years. And when people would ask me, what's the most exciting thing about being mayor? I said, I get to wake up every day and for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that day I'm going to have a chance to make a difference in somebody's lives and make a difference in our community. They said, what's the worst thing about being mayor? I said, because I can't always make a positive difference. You know, but I'm very, very passionate about what we were doing. I, I felt very strong about doing things a little bit different than what has been done in the past. And I will tell you, when I talk bad about politicians, I don't necessarily, I'm not talking bad about elected officials. Uh, a politician, for me, my, in my mind, when I say that, my definition of a politician is someone who cares more about the next election than they do about the next generation. There are elected officials that care more about the next generation than they care about the next election. And I, that's, that's the difference of who you have to work with. And so when you're working with, in my case, a nine-member council or legislators or anybody else, it's very, very, becomes very apparent, very quick, who cares more about the next election and who cares about the next generation. And I became very frustrated by those that cared more about the elections. And, um, and because they would make really bad decisions and, and, and wrong decisions, in my really awesome opinion. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, they were always wrong and I was always right. right? Chuck gave us a stage, so, you know, yeah. that's just how it's going to be. I don't even have a microphone anymore. Yeah, yeah, he can't even cut us off. Okay, so anyway, yeah. follow your passion, whatever that is. I totally second follow your passion. And, and the other, I get approached frequently by people saying, how can I run for office, you know, and how did you do it? And I always ask the question, why? We talked about that earlier. What do you want to change is what I want to hear about. The main message I tend to give to people is there are many different ways to change things. And running for office is kind of a crapshoot. You know, the, you may never have the right circumstances, and never be not, might be the job that calls on your on your particular skills or background or experience. But there are plenty of ways to make change in the world. So figure out how to do that, and maybe that opportunity will open up. And I guess I'm speaking from my own experience because I, I said I'm not going to run for office. I got passionate. I, I threw myself into the issues. And about a, you know, after about a decade of that, people were saying, hey, maybe you should run for office. They were proposing that I run for city council or, or, or something like that. And I was, now I'm going to stick with my nonprofit. It was kind of funny because oftentimes it was people that didn't necessarily agree with me on every issue. I knew because we'd had discussions about that. But they liked that they liked the passion I was showing for the community. That, that was what mattered to them. And so that's what I always tell people, just do that. People who are trying to position themselves for office get really good at positioning themselves. People that try to change things get really good at changing things. And I think if you believe that that's we need change, then go, go out and figure out how to do it. 
I did a, a workshop earlier. I had a lot of fun with the group. We were just talking about, you know, really how do you take your own personal passion for change into, you know, working with others, um, you know, the power of your personal narrative. I won't go through the whole workshop here, but just listening to some of the people stand up and start telling their stories after we did the workshop, everybody, anybody, and everybody can be a leader as long as you're also open to making sure that, you know, you're going to help other people up that leadership ladder too. That's what I would say. Just go find it, work on it, uh, invite others to join your endeavor. And really one other thing about it, this was one more point I want to make about this. Oftentimes we go out there trying to convince others of the rightness of our cause and how they should join us. One of the things about really going out and talking to other people that you care about and take the time to hear what they care about, they'll change you. And they'll change you for the better. I can't tell you how much I learned in all of my advocacy and how my views evolved because I had to hear from people whose experiences were so far different from mine. And I had to try to accommodate that into a vision of the future. So do it because you want to change the world and do it because it makes you feel good to do it. You know, you'll feel better about yourself when you, when you open your mind up to other people's experiences. We've got time for two questions, so please, someone have a question for the our two mayors. Go ahead, please, Kevin. Yeah, I'm just curious about both of your experiences now that you've been part of the Strong Towns movement. How would you go back and talk to your own chambers of commerce and try to move that message forward within the chambers of commerce in your cities? It seems like the business community is so key in, you know, in order to get support and move these ideas forward. I'm just curious about your own experience. Yeah, so the question is how would we take our strong town's experience in particular to move the business community now that, you know, we're bringing these arguments back. In my experience, like I said, I was highly motivated by climate change. And, but I, you know, and it took me to how we make productive investments for our future um, and the rest. And it's kind of interesting because that's one of the appeals of strong town to me is that it speaks to somebody who may have different motivations. You know, what are productive investments and how to do it. I'd love a map of Seattle that looks like that map of Lafayette. I'd love somebody to do all the math <laughs> on that to drive it home. It's just such a big takeaway. So absolutely, I would just, uh, just bring it to people. I do think it's an effective message for folks. And that was one of the things I learned too. You know, biking, we talked about biking as an issue. That was one that we stopped talking about alternatives to driving instead of talking about uh, safety for people. And when you talk about safety, you just have a stronger message. And so, you know, we, you just try to talk to people where they are, and I think this message is, is in fact, a very powerful one. The, the problem is there's a lot of people whose interests are not actually aligned with making those changes. So that's the, that's the bigger challenge. You've got to reach the, the people in the middle who are persuadable. You're not going to persuade the paving companies that, you know, or whoever, you know, who's really deep in it. Not the other side. Yeah. Engineers and uh, that type who really try to run local government and state government. They're always lobbying for more taxes because it's more projects. And, um, and I, it took me a few years to learn that. But um, you know, there was a time when I was in his office that I had every night that I put certain reporters on timeout. You know, <coughs> timeout or you know wouldn't wouldn't return their phone calls. Or I got frustrated with them because. You, know, you read the newspaper and you say, you're never going to get people to trust government when they read this kind of malarkey. You know, when they, when, they, when they get it so wrong. But then one day I decided, you know, i got to go against the grain every now and then. you got to think out of the box. I use that a lot in my campaign. we got to get out of the box if we're going to solve some problems. 
And so I reversed that, and I started inviting the media into my office every Monday morning for coffee. And I said, we're going to talk. If we have nothing to talk about government, we'll talk about who won the football game this past weekend. Something we, we're, going to, we're going to communicate. And maybe through that, you will learn some of why we're doing the things that we're doing. Maybe it'll just kind of rub off on you. And my point of that is, at one point, I asked them, I said, why don't we, Lafayette's a growing community, we have more subdivisions being built, more infrastructure being built, we, should have, we have more taxes coming in, where's the money? I said, one of you could probably win some kind of one of your little awards by doing a series on where's the money going? And I said, I can tell you, I can, when I got into office, we had to pay to the state retirement system nine cents for every fireman or policeman that we paid a dollar to, we had to pay nine cents into the retirement system because of the mismanagement at the state level. By the time I got out of office, it was 33 cents. So I said, my citizens didn't vote for that. We don't pay taxes for that, but we're paying it. And it's coming out of cleaning ditches, cutting grass, and fixing roads. I said, so there's a way to do it, but it's at the expense of something else. I said, often in my community, when you said no to a new tax, you said yes to continued traffic problems. So when you say no to one thing, you are saying yes to something else. My point of all this is, if I know, knew then what I know now, uh, I may not have gone for the tax. And I would have not tried to explain it the way you do. I would have just brought you in because you're the expert at it. And there is a logical conversation to be had. Um, it's, uh, I think I heard maybe somebody this morning say how much, how many decisions are made that are emotional. I saw the road that had one car on it and they wanted to widen it because of all the congestion. It was you that did that, yeah. And I, and I whispered to somebody and said, that's called politics. You know, some politician wanted something built in his district more than likely. There was no logic to widening that road. There was nobody that could ever make a case for widening that road. It's got to be a logical money conversation about what makes sense uh, to, to make this shift, this cultural shift that we're, that we're talking about. And, and, you know, both of us have the same experience. Anytime anybody asks for something, we're actually sitting around the table trying to balance the budget. We actually see the trade-offs so clearly. And it goes, you know, why can't anybody else see this? But they don't. You know, what people tend to do, the way politics tends to work is a coalition organizes around some type of political lift for this particular project. And it's just kind of this competition across them. Everybody's working to lift up their project. And that's a really tough dynamic uh, to deal with. And again, the appeal of the strong towns thing is to, is to try to get people to look at the bigger picture so they can understand the trade-offs. Let's give a thank you to these two men. We need your help. If you think the Strong Town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, make the city! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah, 